Well, let me have you remain standing and take out your copy of the Scripture. And let's turn once again this morning to the book of Ruth in the Old Testament. To chapter 3. We are going to read chapter 3 and 4 this morning. Let's give good attention to this. As we always should, whenever God's word is read, we should give special attention to this as God speaks to us. I think sometimes if, if oh, I don't know, the president or somebody came up and was going to address you that you would pay, and myself as well, we would pay very close attention to it or some other important person. This is God speaking to us whenever we read his word. And so let's afford it the attention that it deserves. This is from Ruth chapter 3. Then Naomi, her mother, let me start again. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of a heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you're wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he, put, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle, settle the matter today. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, 
that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. We're going to stop there. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray for your blessing upon this time of of reveling in it, of, of learning of it, Lord, and we pray that you would bless our time in your son's name. Amen. You can be seated. There are many ways to consider the work of Christ, the work that was accomplished on the cross by Christ, many ways that the Bible throughout the pages of Old and New Testament uh, lay out and describe the work of our Lord. In some places, like 1 John 4.10, it's referred to as a propitiation. It says that in this is love, 1 John 4.10 says that in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. And that view of, of what Christ did sees Christ's work as that which turned aside the wrath of God by him taking it upon himself. God's justice and his anger were thus appeased. Other places we see the work of Christ referred to as a reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5 says that all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. Romans 5, 8 and 10 says that while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. We were enemies, it says. We were estranged. We were not acceptable to God. Not only was he against us, but we were against him because we're sinful, rebellious beings. We were at odds with God. But through Christ, that broken relationship was restored. And you, all of you, all of us, who were alienated from God, through Christ are brought back to God, restored to fellowship, We also hear of Christ's work as a satisfaction because it satisfied the wrath of God. It satisfied the just demands of God. The wages of sin, the scripture tells us, is death. And Christ died, the just for the unjust. In the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, uh, the death of the animal satisfied God's righteousness or righteous anger in a symbolic way, but Christ did it really That satisfaction was made. It's also referred to Christ's work is as an expiation in that it removes the guilt of our sin from us. Removes its ability to condemn us before God. It's also referred to as an atonement. To cover, uh, to, to wash away, to smear something out. And Christ, of course, washes away our sin. Removes the stains on our record. And he does it by his blood. Hebrews 10.10 says that by God's will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And of course Isaiah 53 reminds us that he was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. One other way that it is referred to is as a redemption. Hebrews 9.12 tells us that Christ obtained eternal redemption. Redemption is the purchasing of someone or something out of a bondage. And that is what Christ has done. So many ways that the Bible describes what Christ has done. There are also several ways that all of those things are, are taught to us, are given to us in the Scripture. Various means, and it's another one of the wonders of Scripture that God gives us all of these different ways. He gives us prose. He gives us poetry. He gives us the didactic portions, the teaching portions, the, the, the Old Testament very often, those narrative portions. He gives us the Gospels. He gives us the book of Acts. He gives us the epistles that explain everything. We're also taught about Christ in the Old Testament prophecies. As we think of the sacrificial system and, and all of the things, the, the 
the work in the temple, all of those things also point us towards Christ. They teach us of Christ. The types and the shadows presented in the Old Testament. And sometimes we, we learn more from one kind of, of presentation than another. They're not all equally clear to our minds at all times. They're all profitable. They're all inspired by God to teach us about the work of Christ and the work of God in preparing the way for Christ. Now, you might be asking yourself about now, what does that have to do with Ruth? It is because of this that that Ruth... By the way, an aside here, there are only two books in the Bible that are named for women. Ruth... And I'll let the children come and tell me what the other one is at the end of the service. But there's only one that's named for a Gentile, and that's Ruth. The book of Ruth is one of these places where the, the, the teaching about what Christ has done, what, or in, the, in that case what Christ would be doing, is taught to us in a beautiful way through this story that is laid out for us. It's another wonderful display of, of God's condescension to us as he teaches us. And, and, and in this book, the work of Christ is pictured very beautifully through a story, through a story of grace, a story of meeting needs, and of course, a story of redemption. That's what Ruth is. And this morning we are going to finish up our short look at the story of Ruth and relatives and redemption. We'll be wrapping things up as we look, by God's grace, at chapters 3 and 4 this morning. Broad sweeping themes, several of them in this book. We've talked about some of them, uh, but sort of the main three are going to be our outline for this morning, and they're going to be this. First, the providence of the reigning Lord. Secondly, the provision of a redeeming love. And thirdly, the promise of a royal lineage. That's what we're going to look at this morning. The first item here, the providence of the reigning Lord, is going to be for us a review to get us back into the story. Haven't we seen several times and mentioned at several points along the way the providence of God? And we've seen it through all of the, the two chapters that we've looked at so far, the, you know, the famine Elimelech, the choice of refuge when he leaves because of the famine to go to Moab, the death of all of the men, both uh, Naomi's husband and her two sons, Uh, the, the, the word of God then that came to Naomi that food had again come to Israel, the statement by Ruth that she was not going to leave, that she was going to stay with Naomi, that Naomi's people were her people now, and that Naomi's God was going to be Ruth's God. And that monumental statement in chapter 2, that as Ruth went out to glean in the fields to help support her and her mother-in-law, who were destitute without having anyone to, to provide for them, Chapter 2, verse 2 tells us that she happened to come and to glean in the field belonging to Boaz. And so at every step, God is reminding us, the reader, of his guiding care, of his concern for Naomi and for Ruth, uh, certainly them, but yes, beyond that, to his plan for salvation for them and for us. For all of his people. The providence of God is a powerful theme in this book. And it is, and it is so, not, not merely because it is, or, or, or because it is merely representative of God's care for us through all of history. See, the story of Ruth, as wonderful and as what providentially laden as it is, In this story, what we don't have is really a special case. It's not really a unique working of God, but what we have here in this story is a very clear picture of how God works in every situation. Whether it is good times or or bad times or spiritual mountains or spiritual valleys, God is always at work. Not just in, in very 
obvious situations like with Ruth. But he is always working. He is always guiding. He is always moving. He is always arranging. He's working out his eternal plan according to his counsel, the counsel of his will. He's always involved. He's always interested. He's always concerned. You've heard the old saying, plan your work and then work your plan. That's God. That is God. Decree, we talked about last week, decree and providence. And if we zoom in for a moment, not on Ruth's life, not on Naomi's life, but on our own lives, any Christian's lives, we know, if we know our Bibles, if we believe our Bibles, we know that not only is God working, you know where I'm going with this, but Romans 8.28 tells us that he is working what? For our good. That's the the decree concerning you that he is working out by his providence. Your salvation, the good of your salvation, everything contributes to to what God is doing in you, what God is, is working in you. He said, I know the plans that I have for you in Jeremiah 29, 11. Plans for wholeness, not for evil. It's a good plan from a good God for good purposes. And he's working it out flawlessly in us, his flawed people. Now, we don't always see that, do we? We don't always recognize that God is working and working for our good. Sometimes we don't even believe it. But that doesn't mean it's not true. And it's our understanding of God's working for our good is very often tied, isn't it, to whether we can see the good in the situation. But that's not really the way we should evaluate how God is working in our lives. Because our sight is short. Our sight is dim. Our sight is faulty. We don't know what God knows. His thoughts are above our thoughts. His ways are above our ways. But we can be sure because he has told us in this book, in his word, that everything works for our good, that he is working everything according to the counsel of his will. You know, we're not the only ones to misunderstand this or to have trouble with it. Let's put it that way. Naomi was the same way. Naomi doesn't start out for us as a great example. You know, we talked about the character of Ruth and of Boaz last week, and we said we were going to save a little bit about the character of Naomi for this morning, and here it is. She doesn't start out as a great example. You know, last week I think I compared Ruth to to Abraham, a, a pagan called out of her paganness and her pagan background and her pagan nation to serve the living God. Well, we might compare Naomi in some ways to Job because she is hit hard at the beginning of this book with many sad and trying events, a famine in her homeland, being uprooted from that land and and going to a pagan land. And suffered then the untimely death of not only her husband, but her only two sons. And when she does return to Bethlehem, the city is saying, is that Naomi? Remember that back in in chapter 1, verse 21? Well, in verse 20, she says, when they say that, is this Naomi? She says, don't even call me that anymore. Don't call me Naomi. Naomi means pleasant. That's not me anymore. She said, I went away full And the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? When we come to chapter 2, though, Naomi has sort of settled into life, albeit now as a poor widow. But she has taken this Moabite daughter-in-law of hers fully to herself and refers to her now as my daughter in several places. And her understanding then of God's care for her, her understanding of God's care for Naomi begins to progress from chapter 1 through chapter 2 
and into chapter 3. In chapter 2, in verse 19, remember after the part of the story where Ruth had gone and gleaned in the field and what we looked at last week, in verse 19, Naomi asks Ruth, where did you glean today and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she, that is Ruth, told Naomi, her mother-in-law, with whom she had worked, and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. Can't help but think that, that a smile perhaps came to Naomi's face at this point as she began to put this together, to put together the possibilities, um, to see where this was, to, could be leading, knowing who Boaz is, uh, and sensing really the, the wonderful grace that God might be showing to her and to Ruth. And of course, Naomi only sees the immediate implications of Ruth meeting up with Boaz and being, um, being uh, provided for so, so well by Boaz. But today we're going to see at the end here the implications are cosmic in their importance. One of the things that sometimes gets in our way of properly understanding how the Lord sovereignly and lovingly guiding is guiding all things in our own lives is that we often think that we need to look for the reason. Do you do that? Do you ponder and ponder and ponder why is this happening? What is the Lord doing? And I can't count the times that, I, that I've told people, you don't need to know that. You don't need to do that. God knows what he's doing. We know that it's good. And so what we need to do is look at what we can learn from it. Look what, how we can grow from it. Look how we can rely more upon God. Look how we can be more obedient to God. But we, need to, we think we need to find the reasons for everything. But God doesn't always show us that. So our, our desire can be in vain when we try to, to think of exactly what, is, what was God doing? Why did, he, why did this happen? You know, in fact, he usually doesn't tell us, does he? But he does promise that it is for our good. It is according to his good pleasure. And beloved, shouldn't that be enough for us? Answer, yes, it should. Now, I mentioned before that neither Naomi, nor Ruth, nor Boaz gets to read the end of the book of Ruth. They don't know what we know as we read it. But God shows it to us. He gives us this beautiful story to demonstrate to us, among other things, the providence of the ruling Lord, that he is overseeing all of this. And he is moving things along. And that's the first thing that the book of Ruth shows us, is the providence of the ruling Lord. The second thing he shows us is the provision of a redemptive love. And that brings us back into the story to chapter 3. Look at the first three verses again. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? That is, when he says, seek rest for you, she's saying, should I not seek marriage for you? Should I not help to see that you um, become married? Then she says, verse 2, is not Boaz our relative? That's not a question. That's a way of saying Boaz is our relative. Um, With whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. So the harvest is over. Um, they're now doing this, this winnowing, the threshing, the, the uh, separating of the good from the bad in the harvest. And she tells her in verse 3, Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. There's special significance here, as we saw in, back in verses 19 and 20, that that she had come to the, the, the uh, fields of Boaz. Special significance to the fact that Ruth landed in that field and was shown special kindness by this particular man. He is, as the ESV says, a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers, one of our close relatives, one of our kinsmen, one of those who can 
take this responsibility. The Hebrew word that, that is the term that Boaz is, is that he is Ruth and Naomi's goel. He is their redeemer. The particular word refers to, to someone who is a close relative and one who takes the action of redeeming, of purchasing, often referred to here as a kinsman redeemer. And it's not a real common term for us in this context. Redemption is a word that, that we think of, of purchasing someone, particularly purchasing them out of bondage or enslavement, deliverance. It began as a particular word that had to do with property. If someone was in financial straits, they could sell a piece of property, but there was provision in the law that they could then buy that property back when things were going better. They could redeem that property. But the kinsman redeemer in a family, in a clan, functioned in several ways, several aspects of his work that he could undertake. One is that, what I just mentioned, he could ensure that property did not stay outside of the family, but it came back. If the person who had sold the property was not around anymore, the kinsman redeemer could redeem that property back into the family. Leviticus 25 talks about that. Leviticus 25 also tells us that he could buy back a family member who had, for financial reasons, sold himself into slavery. Very common occurrence. And he could buy that person back out of slavery. As we looked at several weeks, uh, maybe a couple months ago, in Numbers 35, he could, he could function specifically as the, the, um, the one who could track down and execute murderers of near relatives. Remember, we looked at the cities of refuge and how that was where someone could flee when the, the one who was seeking revenge for a killing might chase someone. And they could go to these cities and be safe from this proper, lawful action of a close relative to seek revenge. He could receive restitution for a relative who had been killed. Numbers 5.8 talks about that. And it was the law that the kinsman redeemer would fulfill the requirements of this liberite marriage. The requirements that are found in Deuteronomy 25. And that last one is the one where Naomi's mind is probably drawn when Ruth reveals that the man who has shown this overabundance of favor and kindness to Ruth and to Naomi is Boaz, a near relative, a near kinsman. And so she instructs Ruth, Naomi does, as we have recorded in verses 3 through 5. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say, I will do. Now, there's nothing immodest here in what is being said and what she is telling her to do. Boaz once she comes and does these things, Boaz blesses her for her actions down in verse 10. He calls her a virtuous and honorable woman. But when Naomi tells Ruth to, to put on, uh, to, let's see, anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down, uh, the, the New King James Version, the NIV Version, even the New American Standard Version says, put on your best clothes. Well, remember, these are poor, poor women. They did not have best clothes. They were lucky they had clothes. So these aren't fancy clothes. These are not, this isn't anything to try to physically allure someone. It's, it's the normal word for clothing. It's perhaps a reference to a mantle, which is a large kind of a, a robe type thing that would completely cover her so that she wouldn't be recognized. Perhaps that's, that, in fact, is probably the best thought about what, she, what Naomi is telling Ruth to wear. But what Naomi is telling her to do with these go, going to the threshing floor and uncovering uh, his feet and laying down at his feet, what she is really telling Ruth to do is to go down and propose. Propose marriage to Boaz, according to the ancient Near East customs of the day and in Israel. 
She's encouraging her to, to seek the benefit that would be accorded to you under the law of the Leverite marriage. Uh, he wouldn't propose to her. Remember, she's much younger than he is. Uh, but she is going to go and instigate this. So she goes and does what Naomi says for her to do, and it works. And pay special attention to the way that Boaz refers to her as we read verses 6 through 11 here. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of a heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet, that means quietly, and lay down. At midnight the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. We'll stop there. He recognizes his responsibility. He recognizes the opportunity to fulfill the role of a kinsman redeemer for this family, for not just Ruth, but for Naomi as well. And as the just, righteous man that he is, he agrees to do it. When when Ruth says to him, um, I'm sorry, I'm trying to find the place here. Um, ah, verse 9. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. She says, Spread your wings over your servant. That's a proposal. That's an a proposal that he take her as his wife, that he fulfill this part of the Leverite marriage law, that he do what he, what he is supposed to do, really. And he says that he will do it. Now, there's a device in storytelling, whether it's in print or on stage or on the screen. It's very often found in real life, like here. And it's known as the plot complication. Things are moving along, the story's going well, things are looking like they're going to be resolved, and then, bam, something comes up. Something new is learned, something that throws a wrench into the story, and then you have to resolve that. And we have one here. Verse 12 is the wrench in Naomi's and Ruth's works. In verse 12, he says, And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. There's someone else, there's someone closer, someone who needs to be given first opportunity. And Boaz, as a righteous man, says here, I have to give him first first, uh, chance at this. But he says to her, if he says no, and he swears an oath to her, He says, I swear that I will marry you and I will do everything that the kinsman redeemer needs to do for the family of Elimelech and Malon. Malon was Ruth's husband that had died. So in the morning, and again, there's no hint of impropriety here, before it's light, Boaz tells Ruth to hold out the cloak that you're wearing and he fills it with barley. Uh, Probably a kind of earnest, a kind of pledge that he will do what he promised to do and tells her to take it to Naomi, which she does. And another wonderful ending at the end of of verse, or at the end of verse, chapter 3 and verse 18, when Naomi says, after she learns all of this, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man, she says, will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Naomi is confident that Boaz, and this again is a sign of his character, will settle this today. He's not going to make, the, make us wait. He has said he'll do it. He will do it. Now in chapter 4, things move a little quickly here. In chapter 4, we have the following through of Boaz's promise. He goes to Bethlehem, verse four tells, or chapter 4 tells us. He goes there from the threshing floor, and he waits at the gate. That's like... 
going to City Hall and waiting for them to open up the doors. And he goes there and he waits. It means that he's there on business. And behold, we read, I like the way they point that out, and behold, guess what? The Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. Wow. Imagine that, that the very person that he needs to see just happens to come by as he's waiting there at the gate. Boaz calls him aside, gathers the elders from the city. So a a formal gathering here, a sort of court, is gathered. In verses 3 and 4, Boaz explains the situation to the nearer relative, to this nearer redeemer. He says, verse 3 in chapter 4, Uh, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of the people, my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. We'll stop there. Well, Well, we'll finish that up. He says, I will redeem it. I will redeem it. He says, this other guy says, I'll do it. Well, that kind of throws a wrench into Naomi and Ruth's plans, and Boaz and Ruth's plans. Now, some of you, some of you are old enough to perhaps remember, be familiar with the 1970s television character played by Peter Falk, known as Lieutenant Columbo. Many of you know Lieutenant Columbo. Brilliant detective, but seemingly befuddled, disorganized detective who, who, though he always got his man or woman by the end of the show, the criminals were always underestimating Columbo, weren't they? Um, because of his apparent forgetfulness in his manners. And, and, and he always got them the same way, though. He would ask a bunch of questions which the criminal would answer, thinking that they were answering all of the questions and deflecting the, the, um, their attachment to the crime just fine. And then Columbo would end his discussion with them, and sometimes he'd start walking away, being done with the interview. But then he'd turn back around and ask one more question, which was always the real question, uh, the payday question. And he would always start it the same way. He'd put his head on his hand, he'd go, one more thing. And it was always that one more thing that got him. Well, here we have Boaz's uh, impression of Lieutenant Columbo. In verse 5, Boaz says, oh, one more thing. It says, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth. Ruth the Moabite the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. So not only are you going to have to buy this field, but then you have to marry Naomi and support her, um, Ruth, and support her and her mother Naomi. And at this, the other guy balks. He says, no, I can't do that. Verse 6, he says, I can't redeem it myself lest I impair my own inheritance. I can't marry this woman and care for her in addition to buying this field. Uh, But it could be significant also that because of the fact that he says, Ruth, the Moabitess, that there may be something there as well. But at this, the other redeemer says no. And then so they continue here with Boaz now taking the lead. He is now able to do this, and they complete the the ceremony, the, the meeting with this strange sort of official custom of taking a sandal and giving it to another person. Verse 7 says, It was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it yourself, he drew off his sandal. So odd though that sounds to us, it was tantamount to signing a document. Then Boaz said to the elders, verse 9, and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. So he has served as the kinsman redeemer. 
Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. That was the purpose of the kinsman redeemer. Uh, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. One of the things that would be done under this laborite marriage is that the first male son that would be born would be considered the, the, the offspring of the deceased person. So the kinsman redeemer was raising up a seed for the deceased, the deceased person. So that's what's going on there. It says, then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. And then a blessing here. May the Lord make the woman who is coming unto your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz, now truly the kinsman redeemer, pays the price in order to buy back what was lost and to take to himself the woman who had been known as Ruth the Moabite, a woman who was formerly, remember, without God, cursed because of her roots and her religion and her rebellion, her rejection, this one who had nothing and had to pick up leftovers of others, a stranger in a strange land, is now to be married and to be brought fully into the covenant community. Now a stranger no more, a member of the commonwealth of Israel, a redeemed member of the people of God whom she had said, your God will be my God. Colossians 1.14 says that in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin. Job said, I know that my redeemer lives. And in the book of Ruth, we have a great picture of our kinsman redeemer. He is a relative, a near relative. He's a true kinsman. Hebrews 2.14 says that since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. It says elsewhere that he had to be made like his brethren in all things. And that's what we're seeing here. In order to save man, Jesus had to be man. He couldn't be just, if he was to be any kind of redeemer for us, he had to be a kinsman redeemer. So he took our nature. He became a man. And he paid the price for your redemption, people of God. The ultimate price physical death and the just and and horrible wrath of a justly angry God against sin and sinners. He paid that. By his work, he purchased us who were without a family, who were cursed, who were without God, cursed by our rebellion, cursed in our lack of religion. And he purchased all of those who believe in him from their sin and bondage to sin and future punishment. So the book of Ruth shows us the providence of God, the providence of the ruling Lord. It shows us the providence of a redemptive love. Shows it in regard to Boaz and Ruth, but in that teaches us about us and Christ. But there's one more thing, the promise of a royal lineage. We just read here the reaction of the people to Boaz's redemption of Ruth. You know, lofty, well wishes, a blessing that comes to them for the soon-to-be uh, bride of Boaz, a blessing, a wish that she would be made like Rachel and Leah, remember the wives of Jacob, of Israel, the builder of the nation of Israel. A blessing that, that Boaz's house would be like the house of Perez, a, a predominant clan in the house of Judah, and the one that carried the line of Boaz on down the line. God's blessings were wished upon these people, were pronounced upon these people. And beloved, God's blessings are greater than we can imagine. And as the people here bless Boaz and Ruth, little did they know how utterly prophetic their words were. Had they been able to look into the future, as we are able to look into the past through God's inspired record here, they would have seen a house far more glorious than Paris. 
But let's let the author fill that in for us in the epilogue of the story of Ruth here, beginning in verse 13. It says, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went in to her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. See, it's not just Ruth that is, is blessed from this, but Naomi as well. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. See, here's the bridge between the time of the judges and the time of the kings that we talked about at the beginning. Ruth and Boaz, as I said, are the vital link in maintaining the line of the tribe of Judah, a bridge between the time of the patriarchs and the judges and the coming time of the kings. And they are the great-grandparents of the greatest king that Israel ever had, that the people of God ever had, King David. It's also a blessing, as I mentioned, that the author mentions how Naomi's not left out of this. Remember that she was involved in all of this, and the line that is continuing is as much hers as it is anyone's, even to the point, as I said, that the women say a son has been born to Naomi. Naomi went to Moab, remember, full, but she came back empty. But now, by God's grace, she ends the story more full than she could imagine. For she was the great-great-grandmother of David, Israel's greatest king. And with that, we close. Um, just one more thing. Did I say David? Israel's greatest king? Ruth's name is mentioned 13 times in the Bible. Twelve of them are right here in the book of Ruth. And there's one other time. Let me read it to you. And by doing so, let me demonstrate how mightily God used this poor pagan Moabite woman after she was redeemed by her kinsman redeemer. And also, as I read this, let me use it to show us how important it is not to skip certain parts of the Bible because this is from one of the least read portions of the New Testament. It says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. Then down in verse 15, it continues, And Eliad, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. This is the line of the Messiah that we're reading about here in Ruth. And this is God sovereignly moving history along, manipulating uh, situations, blessing people, bringing people into other people's lives, making it that, that Ruth just happened to come into the field of Boaz. And all of these things, this other redeemer, he couldn't redeem Ruth. All of this so that this would work out just as God wanted to because this was the line that was going to lead to Jesus Christ, our kinsman redeemer. 
And these people, uh, de they demonstrated elements of God's nature. They were faithful to the law of God. And we could draw, try to draw a lot of application about their goodness and Ruth's virtue and Boaz's uprightness and Naomi's faith and how we should all act like Ruth and Boaz and Naomi, which it probably wouldn't hurt us if we did to a certain extent. They're shining examples. Especially, remember the backdrop of the book of Ruth is the book of Judges. We talked about that early on. But the story of Ruth is not about Ruth. It's not about Boaz. It's not about Naomi. But it's about God. It's about a royal Lord and his providential hand. It's about a redemptive love and God's working out of that redemptive love. Surely for them, but more for us. It's about a royal line. It's about a promise that God kept and how he kept it, how he glorified himself, how he provided the continuity that through the line of Judah would come the Lion of Judah. It's a story about the redemptive work of God. Because it's not just about Ruth's redemption. It is about yours. Your redemption. God, your kinsman redeemer. Christ, your kinsman redeemer. We should also remember that your redemption is not just about you. It's not about your parents. It's not about your brothers and sisters. It's not about your faithfulness. It's not about your character. It's about God. It is about God reaching down and redeeming a lost sinner, you, by his grace, through his son. Your redemption is about Christ, who is your kinsman redeemer. Remember that. Remember that extension. Remember that true epilogue to the story of Ruth when you read the story of Ruth in the future. And with that, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this story by which you teach us Again, what you teach us in so many ways throughout the Bible. You teach us about Christ. And we thank you that, that through this beautiful story, that again, you, you draw us through history and draw us again to the city of Bethlehem where Christ was born. We thank you for him being born, being made our kinsman redeemer, being made kinsman that he could be our redeemer. We thank you for Christ. We thank you that he has purchased us and that we have been blessed by being his children. And we ask this and rejoice in this through him. Amen.